0: Greetings, everybody. I am so grateful to be here and to have this opportunity to stand before you again. Melissa and I truly want to thank you for all of your love, for all of your concern, for all of your support. I would like to speak about Yahweh's grace today. I'm so thankful for His grace and the uh, rich opportunity that He extends to us with his grace that we could repent. And we just heard Ferris talk about the wondrous works that Yahweh has done uh, and how he extends such a grand opportunity of deliverance to us. So why is this topic important? Grace is undeserved favor. That's the way we usually think of it. But as we shall see, it is also divine influence divine influence. That is, it is the influence of Yahweh working in our lives. Especially in our culture where the popular teaching is that grace abolished Yahweh's instructions for life, otherwise known as his law or as, or as his Torah, it is, it is important to understand what grace is and what, it is and what it is not. Grace is undeserved favor, but it also is divine influence. And the popular teaching in our culture is that Yahweh's grace abolished his instructions for life, otherwise known as his law or his Torah, I might add. And so it's important. This topic is important. It's it's important for us to understand what grace is and what it is not. Here is grace defined from Strong's Dictionary, and every time the word grace appears, I use the New King James Version as my main study Bible, and so uh, I say that every time the word grace appears in the New King James Version, it is translated from the Greek word charis. And charis is defined in the dictionary as graciousness. Graciousness as gratifying of manner or act, abstract or concrete, literal, figurative or spiritual. And then notice this next phrase, especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, including gratitude. Notice the dictionary says, especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. And so let's first look at this idea of how it is undeserved favor and it is a free gift. I want to begin in the scriptures by looking at Ephesians 2, eight through nine. And this is probably the most popular grace passage, Ephesians 2, eight through nine. For by grace, again, derived from the word charis in the Greek text, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift. There's another Greek word behind that word, doron. It is the gift of Yahweh, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So by grace, you've been saved through faith it's the gift of Yahweh. Also Romans 5, 15 through 19 is packed with language describing grace as a free gift. Romans 5, 15 through 19. But the free gift, this word comes from charisma by the way, the free gift or the charisma is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, we know who that one man was, right, Adam? If by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace, or the charis of Yahweh, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Yahshua the Messiah, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. And my comment on that is that it resulted in justification from sin. That's what it's talking about when it says justification, being justified from our sins. Verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Yahshua Messiah. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through the man's, one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. This is how we receive life, is that we receive justification from our sins, so that we no longer receive the death penalty because of those sins so it results in justification of life verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous Romans 1:11 11 also describes charisma as a gift where Paul explained to the Romans that he wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift. Romans 11 says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, some charisma, so that you may be established. The definition of grace and its use in Scripture shows that it is a free gift. At the same time, grace influences the life of the recipient. And let's look at that next. So grace influences the life of the recipient. In Acts eleven twenty two through 23, we find a passage that describes grace as being visible. Did you know that you can see grace? Grace is visible. Let's look at this passage and find this out. Acts eleven twenty two through 23. Then news of these things came to the ears of the assembly in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of Yahweh, he was glad and encourage them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the master. So what did Barnabas see? He saw a group of people in which Yahweh's grace was reflected in their lives. He saw a behavior in them that reflected Yahweh's grace. This is something that he saw in these people. He went to Antioch and he saw these things. So please give special thought to this. The influence of grace is reflected in your conduct. So not only is grace visible, but it also empowers. Grace empowers. 1 Corinthians fifteen nine through 11. Paul claimed that grace empowered him to labor abundantly for the sake of Yahweh. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11 says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the assembly of Yahweh. But by the grace of Yahweh I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of Yahweh which was with me. So notice he says that he labored, and yet not I, but the grace of Yahweh which was with me. Yahweh's grace empowered Paul, inspired and influenced him to do what he did, helped him. Verse 11, therefore whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Also, 2 Peter 3.18 says we are to grow in grace and knowledge. So grace is something that is active in our lives, And we are to take that, and we are to grow with that. This indicates continual development. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Master and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. The word charisma, I mentioned that word earlier, and you may recognize that word as a word that's made its way into our English language. The word charisma itself confirms the influence of grace. Interestingly, the words charisma and charismatic, you've probably heard charismatic also. The words charisma and charismatic, which have become part of our language, are derived from the Greek word charis that we started out with today, the word for grace. So when someone has charisma, they are gifted to influence or appeal to others. You know, we see a person that just draws people to them and influences them. We, say, we can say that that person has charisma and it's, it's, a, it's a drawing effect that, that draws people to that person and they are gifted to influence or appeal to others. Now, sometimes charisma is, when we're talking about in the experience of human beings, sometimes people with, with charisma uh, use it for the wrong purpose. So we're not always talking about that a human being that has charisma has Yahweh's grace. I'm just showing that this is an example of how that when a person has charisma, they have the ability to, to affect others. They have something that's visible and drawing to them. And with us, we should have the charisma that comes from Yahweh's charis, or His grace, so that we would be an influence and that we would draw people toward Yahweh, that, that, that it would reflect in our lives and it would be something that they can see. Moreover, grace has been at work since ancient times. It's not something new. In Genesis 6-8, through it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Here, grace is translated from the Hebrew word, of course, because we're looking back at the Hebrew scriptures now in Genesis. It's translated from the Hebrew word ken, which is similar in meaning to the Greek word charis. It means graciousness, that is subjectively, kindness, favor, or objectively, beauty. And so Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. So grace is visible. It empowers. We're to grow in grace and knowledge. Charisma confirms the influence of grace, and grace has been at work since ancient times. I also want to look at grace and mercy coupled together. Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, The word eleon from the Greek text, which means compassion, and find grace to help in time of need. So it's a wonderful thing to contemplate that we can obtain mercy and that we can find grace. We have this merciful Elohim, Yahweh, who has extended this opportunity to us. He's extended his offer of grace and mercy, his compassion to us. So mercy expresses the idea of compassion, while grace is undeserved favor and divine influence. That's a nice package, isn't it? Compassion and undeserved favor and divine influence. That can help you in your life. Grace and mercy work hand in hand. Praise Yahweh for His grace and mercy. We've talked about this undeserved favor, this divine influence in one's life, and now I want to continue on to talk about grace and obedience. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 6-1. This is Paul writing. He asks, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Be careful of the thought in today's culture that grace will abound, even if we continue in sin. Paul's answer reflects that grace and a life of sin are incompatible. Grace and a life of sin are incompatible. Grace is not a license to sin, that is, it is not hyper-grace, to use a term of today's culture, but... The big lie of Genesis 3-4 concerning disobedience continues to this day. And what is that big lie? You shall not surely die, even if you disobey Yahweh's words. Let's also look at Romans 1-5 in comparison to this. It says, Through him we received grace and apostleship for what? For obedience. To the faith among all nations for his name. This verse reinforces that grace and obedience are compatible. The good news is a message of deliverance from from sin instead of continuance in sin. That's the good news message. Deliverance from sin instead of continuance in sin. Let's also compare Revelation 14, 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints, here are those who keep the commandments of Yahweh and the faith of Yeshua. Let's move on now to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Speaking about how we are to put off the old man and put on the new. Ephesians four seventeen through 24. But you have not so learned, Messiah, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Yeshua, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to Yahweh in true righteousness and holiness." Well, that passage is just packed with the idea of how once we are a recipient of Yahweh's grace, we're to live differently. The old life is supposed to go away and the new life begins. We're to no longer walk as we used to walk. This, this way that we, that we have learned the Messiah is a way of obedience. It's not a way of disobedience. Notice that, it, that I emphasize there in verse 20. You have not so learned, Messiah. We're to put off the old man and put on the new. If you can take that, I love that thought. Just take that one thought and encapsulate it in your mind. Put off the old and put on the new. Let's also advance now to looking at Paul's witness to Felix in Acts 24, verses 24 through 25. As Paul witnessed to Felix concerning the faith in Messiah, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Notice here in Acts 24, 24 through 25. And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him, concerning the faith in messiah now as he reasoned about righteousness self-control and the judgment to come felix was afraid and answered go away for now when i have a convenient time i will call for you so these things that paul reasoned with felix about these are attributes that are consistent with the reflection of grace in one's life righteousness self-control and judgment to come. That reminds me of conversations that we probably should have with people when they are inquiring about this this manner of life and what life means and what does it mean to become a follower of Yahweh and to reach the kingdom as opposed to the other alternative, which is to not do that and receive punishment. We could speak of righteousness, repentance from sin, receiving justification for those sins. We could speak then of self-control and how that we are to live a different life. And, of course, that there is the judgment to come. And so we have a choice to make. So now I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 8 through 10 this time. I want to begin by reviewing verses 8 and 9 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of Yahweh, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, indeed, saved by grace, not of works, because all have sinned, and consequently none can justify themselves. That's a key phrase there, justify themselves. We can't justify ourselves from the sins that we've committed. This is what Paul mentions numerous times in his writings. But if we continue to read the context here in Ephesians chapter two, we come to verse 10 and verse 10 further instructs us about this matter. It states, for we are his workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for what? For good works which Yahweh prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, what works did Yahweh prepare beforehand that we should walk in them? Answer, the keeping of His commandments. The keeping of His commandments. In regard to this, we can also see Matthew five sixteen. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is important, once again, that people see the grace of Yahweh reflected in our lives, that they see our good works, and so that they would glorify our Father in heaven. Also another passage, Titus 2.14 This verse starts out with the word who, and and it's referring to the Messiah. It says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works? So that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, in other words, our sins, the, the commandments of Yahweh that we have broken, and that we would be purified and be a special people, zealous for good works. So Paul contrasts good works against lawless deeds. Those are two different things, good works, lawless deeds. They're opposite of each other. Well, what is the opposite of lawless deeds? Lawful deeds. Lawful deeds. Let's move on to one of the other passages I mentioned, Titus 3, verses 5 through 8. It speaks about how that we are justified from sin by grace, and also that we should maintain good works, Titus 3, 5 through 8. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, there's that mercy in play again, according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us abundantly through yeshua messiah our savior that having been justified once again justified from what justified from sin having been justified by his grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life this is a faithful saying and these things i want you to affirm constantly paul told titus you know let's let's Let's, cl- uh, let's focus in on this. He told Titus that he wanted Titus to affirm constantly, and read the rest of the verse, that those who have believed in Yahweh should be careful to maintain good works. And so I want to follow that direction and affirm to you today that we should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, the last sentence of the verse says. When we have received justification from sin, should works accompany our faith? Yes, the Bible says faith without works is dead. And let's continue on to look at that passage in James chapter 2. We're going to look at several verses here in James chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, verse 20, verse 24, and verse 26. So beginning in verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, If it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Verse 26: For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The context of these statements that James makes is from a post-conversion perspective. That is, after receiving justification from sin. So we come along on this path, and we are a sinner. Who, who is in need of Yahweh's grace, who is in need of Yahweh's forgiveness. We need to repent from our sins and follow a righteous path. And so we receive of that. We receive justification from sin. And then once we become converted, that continuing justification is also based upon our works. James writes once again from a post-conversion respect, uh, perspective, Whereas Paul usually writes from a conversion perspective. That's why in Ephesians he says, by grace, not of works, that not of yourself. It's because we cannot justify ourselves from our sins. We need Yahweh to forgive us, to extend his mercy upon us to do that. And then we are to live faithfully to Yahweh after that. And just think about this for just a moment. Obviously, obviously, after one receives justification from sin, if he then turns back to a life of sin, he will lose his justification. Will he not? The Bible also says that we will be judged according to our work. 1 Peter 1:17. First Peter 1:17 says, and if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And again, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 12, Revelation 22:12, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. And so kind of in keeping with this idea uh, of faith and works, I want to go on and talk a little bit about how that obedience is not legalism. Obedience is not legalism. There's a man by the name of A.W. Tozer who said, quote, to escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience, end quote. And Ferris once shared with me that obedience isn't legalism, it's a symptom of genuine salvation. Legalism is the belief that one brings justification from sin upon himself by obeying instructions he previously broke. This philosophy is foreign to the entire Bible. It's foreign to the entire Bible. The prevailing view of the Bible in the religious world today is that the, quote, Old Testament, end quote, teaches salvation or justification from sin by one's works, and that the, quote, New Testament, unquote, teaches salvation or justification from sin by grace, that is, by Yahweh providing forgiveness. However, justification from sin has always come through Yahweh's forgiveness. It always has, throughout the Bible. Even in, what, even in what is commonly called the Old Testament, no one could justify themselves from sin. They went through a process by which Yahweh provided justification from sin. For proof of that, let's look at Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, this is Yahweh speaking, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But you may ask, if a system for justification from sin was already in place, for what purpose did the Messiah die? The blood of the Messiah has value not only for this age, but also for the age to come. Describing that, let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 15. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to Yahweh, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Elohim? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So I say again, justification from sin has always come through Yahweh's forgiveness. It is then necessary for the person receiving the forgiveness to live faithfully instead of continuing in sin. You remember the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Also, we find that the law, or Yahweh's instruction, or His Torah, defines sin. Let's look at Romans 7-7. I have a couple of scriptures on this, Romans 7-7 and 1 John 3-4. Beginning with Romans 7-7, it says, What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. And then 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever commits, uh, excuse me, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Some of your Bibles may say that sin is iniquity, but know that iniquity is uh, kind of an old word from the King James days, that means lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Let's also go to the book of Romans again, and l- this time look at chapter 3, verse 31. In Romans 3, 31, Paul himself answered the much-debated question of today, as plainly and as strongly as words can express. He said, do we then make void the law through faith? That's the question that gets bantered about so much in our society. Do we then make void the law through faith? Paul's answer to this is certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Just think, the very act of repenting from sin or lawlessness establishes the law through faith. This repentance from sin is part of coming to faith. Repentance from lawlessness establishes the law through faith. And this word void, do we then make void the law through faith? The word void in Romans 3.31 comes from the same Greek word that abolished does in Ephesians 2.15. It derives from the same Greek word katargeo. And thus, that which is voided is also abolished. The law is either established or abolished. It cannot be both. It's either established or abolished. It's either established or made void. Those are two polar opposites. Both cannot be in effect at the same time. And so does Ephesians 2 state that Yahweh's law is abolished? Well, no, it doesn't. Without going there, I would just remark that the context of Ephesians 2 describes man-made rules, man-made rules, which were abolished because they caused enmity or hostility between Israelite and non-Israelite peoples. I am going to read verses 14 through 18 uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. And notice that peace was made between the two peoples, Israelite and non-Israelite, who were separated by enmity or hostility. So let's do a look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. It says for he that is the Messiah himself is our peace, who has made both Israelite and non-Israelite made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh Abolished what? The enmity. Enmity is, uh, you could also say, hostility. That might be a word that a lot of us are more familiar with. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to Yahweh in one body through the stake, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And so we can see throughout, this, throughout these verses that it's talking about two peoples. It's talking about enmity or hostility between these two peoples. And it's talking about how peace has come between both. And again, it was man-made ordinances that caused this hostility that were abolished, not the Torah. In fact, if we examine the Torah, we will find that instead of causing hostility, the Torah commands us to be kind to the stranger and even love the stranger. For evidence of that, let's look at Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. Exodus twenty-two twenty-one: 21. You shall neither mistreat, mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. A little bit over from that, chapter 23, verse 9. Exodus 23, 9. Also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Look at the... Look at the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 33 through 34. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. And if a stranger dwells with you or in your land, you shall not mistreat him. You shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Pretty strong words there. You shall love the stranger as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your Elohim. This kind of commandment did not build hostility between peoples, did it? It it built love between peoples. Love him as yourself. Also in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 10:17 through19. For Yahweh, your Elohim is Elohim of Elohim and master of masters, the great El, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Let's go forward to the days of King Solomon. Solomon acknowledged that the stranger was welcome to come and be a part when, when in his prayer at the newly opened temple, he prayed. And we'll read 1 Kings 8 41 through 43. I'm trying to give you just a little bit of time in case you're following along since our uh, display is gone now. 1 Kings 8 41 through 43. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And words of welcome are also expressed toward the stranger in the writings of Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 3 through 7. Isaiah 56, 3 through 7. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so we can see, if we read through the Torah and the prophets, that certainly... Uh, Yahweh's, Yahweh's commandments are not what built hostility between peoples. It was the ordinances of men that did that. And they are what were abolished in Ephesians chapter 2. Moreover, the Torah is consistent with life. Consistent with life. In Psalm 119, verses 92 through 93. Psalm 119, 92 through 93. This is what we read. <clears throat> Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. It's the, it's the disobedience to Yahweh's precepts which bring about death. It's the obedience to his precepts that are consistent with life. Let's look now at Paul's words. Paul's words are some of the most debated words about whether or not uh, we should continue to keep Yahweh's laws. And so let's, as it were, put Paul on trial. What did Paul, in his own words, say he believed? We should hear Paul's testimony and then ask ourselves this question. Am I interpreting Paul's writings in a manner consistent with what he said he believed? We already read Romans 3.31, but just a quick review. Paul said, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now in Acts 24.14, Paul, in his own words, testified before Felix. And he stated that he believed all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So I want to read that verse in its entirety, Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the L of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, So let's take that piece of evidence from Paul's own testimony, that he believed all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Let's advance to Acts 25, verse 8. Here, Paul, in his own words, testifying before Festus, stated that he had not committed any offense at all against the law of the Jews, which is the Torah. Make no mistake about that. The law of the Jews is the Torah. That's what it's talking about. Acts 25, and for context, I want to read verses 7 through 8. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Notice. Paul claimed he had done nothing against the law of the Jews, that is the Torah, nor against Caesar, that is Roman law. Let's advance a little further over to Acts chapter 28, verse 17. And I'd like to read uh, verses 17 through 18 here. This is Paul, in his own words, before the Jewish leaders in Rome. Hey, hopefully that'll last. We've got a display again. So now, down at the bottom of the screen, uh, Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 18. Paul, in his own words before the Jewish leaders in Rome, stated that he had done nothing against his people Israel or the customs of his fathers. And it came to pass, after three days, that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. There we go. Top of the screen now. I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. Verse 18. Who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. Who were Paul's fathers? Paul's fathers were Israelites. To whom pertains the giving of the law? Romans 9.4 says that. That is, their customs, when it speaks of the customs of the fathers, their customs were the Torah, which includes the weekly Sabbath, the dietary laws, and many other laws, many other instructions for life. I'll just read Romans 9 4 real quick, uh, actually uh, 3 and 4. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Messiah for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, or the Torah, the service of Yahweh, and the promises. So Paul's fathers were Israelites. When he spoke of doing nothing against the people or the customs of the fathers, He spoke of of doing nothing against Torah. That's what Paul in his own words testified. So I would ask, whose side are we on? Do we believe Paul or his accusers? Remember that his accusers laid things against him that they could not prove. And I would ask us today, and and this should be a question for our society. Are we going to believe Paul in his own words, or are we going to believe his accusers? If we believe Paul's testimony, then we must believe that he kept Torah and was faithful to the commandments. Otherwise, we may as well put him on trial all over again. Furthermore, Paul's actions agree with his words and prove that he kept the law. Let's look at Acts 21, 17-26. Here Paul went through a Torah prescribed Nazarite purification to prove that he had been falsely accused of teaching against the law. We read, and when he had come to Jerusalem, the, and when we had come to Jerusalem, oh, there it goes again. I'm in Acts 21 verse 17, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which Yahweh had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Master. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you. These people had received some information about Paul. They had been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are, who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That was something they couldn't prove. That was, some, that was a false report. Nevertheless, it was done. This was said about Paul, that he teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses, that they may shave their heads, and that they all may know that those things of which, were in, of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. That is, the context itself tells us that this was a false accusation against Paul. These accusations were nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, strangled, and from sexual immorality. And then here in verse 26, notice Paul's action. Then Paul took the men and the next day having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. At which time an offering, down in verse 26, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Paul also referred to these actions in his defense before Felix in Acts 24,17 through18. He said, "Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. So Paul explained that he was not causing a riot, he was behaving orderly, and he was doing these things that are prescribed in the Torah. His actions matched his words. Let's go a little further in Paul's writings and look at the meaning of the phrase, under the law. And we'll begin in Romans 6.14 for this section. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. After reviewing Paul's testimony, by the way, we're in the book of Romans here, the letter to the Romans, Paul wrote this verse also. So after reviewing Paul's testimony in the previous section that we just got done with, Paul on trial... What does he mean by the statement, you are not under law, but under grace? Context determines the meaning. Context determines the meaning. In context, the meaning of the statement is, you are not under the penalty of the law, but under grace. Context and the overall scope of Scripture support this conclusion. For additional context, let's go back and look at verses 1 and 2, and then also verses 14 through 18. So we go back and re- we review Paul's words again here from verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If you drop down to verse 14, notice that it says For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And then we read on, verse 15 and, and down the list here to verse 18. Paul again asks the question, What then, shall we sin because we are not under law? My comment here is that that is not under the penalty of law, but under grace, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin, leading to death, Or of obedience leading to righteousness. Notice I've underscored two possibilities here sin and obedience. Verse 17 But Yahweh, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so these are the two things: sin or righteousness, sin or obedience. Twice in this passage, verses one and verse 15, verses one and fifteen, Paul asks if we should continue in sin. Both times, his answer is certainly not. Why? Because sin is lawlessness, as we already covered earlier. Sin places us back under the penalty of the law. And that's where this ties together. It's, Paul speaks of not being under the law here in this context as being under the penalty of the law. Because sin, that's what sin does, is it brings us back under the penalty of the law. Grace and obedience frees us from the penalty of the law. And that's the beautiful thing about the good news. I love it that he says, you were slaves of sin, you were, past tense. Not you are, you were, and yet you obeyed. And then having been set free from sin, you became, you were, and yet you became, you became slaves of righteousness. And so I say again, Paul himself answered the much debated question of today. Do we then make void the law through faith? And the answer is certainly not. And remember, never forget Paul's own testimony of what he said that he believed. Also want to look at Galatians five, verses eighteen through twenty three. This is another passage where we find the phrase under the law. Galatians five, eighteen through twenty three. And as we read through this, notice that it gives several examples of carnal works which fall under the penalty of the law and contrast them to the fruits of the Spirit against which there is no law. Galatians five eighteen through 23. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So those who live according to the fruit of the Spirit are not under the penalty of the law because there is no law against this context. In contrast, those who do the works of the flesh, idolatry, murder, etc., are under the law. That is, they are under the penalty of the law because there are laws with penalties against these violations. So accordingly, the meaning of verse 18 in context is, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. And moving on to 1 Corinthians 9.21, let's look at another time that we find this phrase used. Now, this time it's a little different, and we will once again look at the context for the meaning. And this is something that we need to be aware of, that depending on context, under law can also mean subject to the law. And this is a passage where it means that. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen through 22. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward Yahweh, but under law toward Messiah, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So what this passage describes is that Paul tried to be in tune with people to reach them, but he assured us that he was not without law law toward Yahweh but that he was under law toward Messiah clearly showing that once again he upheld the law and so we must take the whole context when he says that he became all things to all people that certainly doesn't mean that he started living a life of sin so he could reach sinners he just tried his best to be in tune with people to reach them and he assures us once again that he upheld the law in so doing. And so we must, we must take the whole passage in context uh, and be, be aware or beware of taking verses out of context. Um, and so I would conclude now that grace is undeserved favor. And grace is Yahweh's influence in our lives. Be careful of the idea that obeying Yahweh is against grace. Once again, grace and obedience are compatible with one another. We may often hear that they're not compatible with one another, but be assured. And that's one reason why we gather today to look into the words of life and see what instruction is there for us and we can be assured from the from looking at these words that grace and obedience are compatible Uh, we should be motivated by that we should be inspired by that to go and take our next steps in life and continue being faithful to Yahweh and uh, brothers and sisters that's what I want us to do throughout the upcoming feast is to let Yahweh's grace be reflected in our lives that we could enjoy this feast, enjoy one another, and that we could leave with our batteries recharged to be ready to go out into this world which is so against the ways of Yahweh. We need this time of renewal. We need this time of revival uh, and recharging. Hallelujah. So that we can so that we can better so that we can be better equipped to go out and face this. Remember that Yahweh's law, that is His Torah, His instruction, defines sin. Yahweh imparts His grace to us so that we can repent, be forgiven, and then live according to His instruction as His grace influences us. Scripture confirms that grace influences the heart and reflects in the life. Let us be a reflection of that. Let us be a reflection of Yahweh and whose image we are made. And so finally, I would just say, as it says in 2 Peter 1, 2, the first part of the verse, may grace and peace be multiplied to you.